0: hey everybody welcome to the murderish podcast and my very first episode i'm your host jamie rice i am so excited this day has finally come i've been working toward launching this podcast for quite a while now and i am beyond excited to share it with you Murderish is a true crime podcast where I'll bring you fascinating murder stories and share all the details because that's what we true crime junkies live for. Occasionally, I'll discuss stories that didn't end in murder, but they're creepy nonetheless. I also intend to bring interview guests on the show, people like prosecutors, homicide detectives, defense attorneys, basically anybody in the true crime space. Full disclosure, you guys, I'm a podcast newbie, a rookie, a minor leaguer, so to speak. But I am passionate about true crime, all aspects of it, so hang in there with me and know that I will strive to make each episode better than the last. If you are intrigued by murder and need to know every detail when it happens, you've come to the right pod. Oh, and don't worry, this doesn't make you a murderer, it just means you're murder-ish. Now, let's get into the first episode. It's a good one. Today's story is about a beautiful young woman whose life was cut short and also my experience being a juror on the trial that occurred as a result of her murder. And for those of you who have listened to the interview that I gave on Heather McDonald's podcast called Juicy Scoop, I believe it was episode 163, today I'm going to be telling that story again here, but I'm going to go into a lot more detail. The story involves a newly married couple named Robert and Courtney Arvizu. They lived in an apartment together in Newhall, California. Newhall's part of what's known as the Santa Clarita Valley, which is located in Los Angeles County in Southern California. And I've actually lived in the Santa Clarita Valley for the last six years. Santa Clarita is a safe family town with good schools. It's a large valley, but it's the kind of valley where everybody's connected in one way or another. Robert or Rob and Courtney met in January of 2015. They married two months later, and just two months after they got married, Courtney was dead. At the time they met, Courtney was living in an apartment in Newhall with her mom and her dog. Courtney was an attractive brunette with a small frame. Uh, She had tattoos on her arms and chest. She was 25 years old, almost half Rob's age. Rob was 49 years old at the time. He lived in an apartment right across the street from Courtney and her mom. It's unclear to me how they met, but they began dating in January, and Courtney moved in with Rob shortly thereafter. Two months after they began dating, Courtney and Rob went on a trip to Vegas. Rob was a graphic design artist, and so he was going to a graphic design convention, and and Courtney decided to join him. While they were in Vegas, they just decided, spur the moment, to get married, and they got married in a small ceremony on March twenty seventh, 2015. On their wedding night, they went out to a bar to celebrate, and in the evening, they just happened to come across uh, or run into an old bandmate of Rob's. I guess Rob used to be in a band. They kind of mingled with him for a while. They stayed at the bar pretty late, and then they ended up back in their hotel room. When they got back to their hotel room, Courtney and Rob got into an altercation, and basically it was as a result of Rob being upset or what he perceived Courtney to be flirting with his uh, former bandmate that night. So he got really upset. He started calling her really foul names. He called her a whore and all kinds of things. Well, the altercation got so loud that some of the hotel guests actually ended up calling security. Uh, when security got to their hotel room, they noticed marks on Courtney's face and her neck. So they called the Las Vegas Metro Police. Uh, when the police officer got there, he also noticed the injuries to Courtney's face, her neck, and also her eyes. She had what's called petechia in her eyes, and that results from somebody choking you. So basically, there's little blood vessels in your eyes that pop, and it causes these little small dots in your eyes. And so at trial... A close-up photo of Courtney's face was shown, and she did, in fact, have broken blood vessels in her eyes, or petechia. She had a swollen eye, and she also had red marks on her neck. After the incident at the hotel room, after the altercation, Rob and Courtney remained together. At trial, actually, the defense attorney for Rob called Rob's boss at the time to testify. It was a woman, and she's the one who ran the graphic design company that Rob worked for. And apparently, Rob's boss had testified that Rob used to tell her that Courtney liked to have kinky sex. And so the defense basically was trying to show the jury or trying to indicate that Courtney's injuries in Vegas were as a result of the rough sex they apparently had engaged in earlier in the evening. Two months after the Vegas incident on the evening of May 23rd, Rob and Courtney went to a house party in Northridge to celebrate Rob's best friend, Eric's birthday. Rob met Eric through Eric's wife, Maylin, who had been close friends with Rob for almost 20 years. So Rob and Eric became best friends through Rob's prior relationship with Maylin. And actually Rob was the godfather to Eric and Maylin's children. That's how close they were. So Eric's birthday party was being held at a friend's house in Northridge. Northridge is about a 20-minute drive from Rob and Courtney's apartment in Newhall, so not too far. People who were at the party said Rob and Courtney showed up happy. There was actually a photo of Rob and Courtney shown at the trial. And they had their arms around each other. They were smiling. Each of them had a beer in their hands. At some point during the party, Rob began to act erratically, very erratically. Uh, In fact, a guy who attended the party who Rob really didn't even know at the time. The guy testified that Rob actually jumped on his back and then bit him on the cheek. And the bite on his cheek was enough to cause an injury. So very strange behavior from Rob. A little later in the evening, Rob became very angry. He began yelling at Courtney, calling her a whore and all kinds of really nasty names and kind of charging toward her in an aggressive way mei Eric's wife and Rob's good friend of many years, testified at trial that she got in between Rob and Courtney at that time because the argument was so heated. mei told Rob, basically, you know, calm down, you're embarrassing yourself. And Rob kept yelling at Courtney, you're a whore, fuck you, fuck you, you're a whore. And Courtney was actually yelling back at him. She was saying, fuck you, Rob, fuck you. And by all accounts, Courtney was a feisty girl. So, you know, she was not somebody to take these things quietly. So Malin, at that time, told Courtney, shut up, stop it. You know, she's just trying to calm everybody down. She's trying to defuse the situation. Basically, the situation just didn't calm down. And so Maylin tells Eric, you know, you need to do something with Rob. He's out of control. So Eric ends up taking Rob to another room in the house. And Rob proceeds to tell Eric that Courtney's having sex with other guys at work and that she's holding charges over his head. He kept saying, she's holding charges over my head, referring to the Las Vegas incident. At that time, Eric convinces Rob to go outside in the front yard because just Rob just won't calm down. So Eric and Rob go outside and eventually Eric convinces Rob that they need to leave the party. So Rob and Eric get into Eric's car and they leave. But when Rob leaves, Rob has Courtney's cell phone and her car keys in his pocket. So she's basically stuck at a party with people she hardly knows. Because if you'll remember, you know, she and Rob had only met five months earlier. So she was just getting to know all of Rob's friends. And so here she is at this party, not really knowing anybody. She doesn't have a cell phone and she doesn't have any keys. So Eric and Rob left the party in Eric's car. Rob's sitting in the passenger seat. and At at first, he's fairly calm. But during the drive, Rob's mood changes and he becomes very angry with Eric and says, fuck you, Eric, you're taking Courtney's side. He just is really upset with Eric saying that, you know, Eric's taking Courtney's side. So they continue driving and they eventually get on the freeway. They get on the 405 freeway north. And for those of you who are from LA, you know, the 405 is one of the busiest freeways in Southern California. And it's a very dangerous situation to be driving with somebody who's acting so erratically. While they're on the freeway, Rob becomes out of control. And he starts basically beating Eric up in the car. He's punching him in the side of the face. He starts choking him. And obviously, being that it was a very dangerous situation, Eric pulls over to the side of the freeway and tells Rob, you better calm down or I'm going to kick you out of the car. Rob ends up calming down. He apologizes profusely. So Eric decides to pull back onto the freeway and continue driving. And they're basically they're headed back to Rob's apartment in Newhall but Rob gets angry again and just starts beating Eric up again. And Eric pulls over again on the side of the road and puts Rob in some sort of chokehold. And it came out at trial that Eric has some MMA fighting experience. So I'm sure he was probably a pretty good match for Rob. And he tells Rob to get out of the car. Rob complies. And basically at that time, Rob just falls to his knees and starts telling, you know, Eric, he's sorry, he's sorry. So once again, you know, he's getting really upset and then he's apologizing profusely. Well, Eric didn't trust him at this point, so he quickly slams the passenger door and he just drives off, leaving you know Rob on the side of the road in Newhall, not too far from his apartment. So Eric starts driving back to Northridge where the party was. But before Eric gets back to the party, he decides to stop at a neighbor's house to clean up. I mean, his face is bleeding really bad. He thinks his nose is broken. So he stops at the neighbor's house. And while he's there, they take pictures to kind of document the injuries on um, Eric's face. And there was a close-up picture shown at trial to the jurors. And his nose definitely looked broken. He had a swollen eye. And he also had red marks on his neck. He had a bunch of blood on his shirt as well. So after being at the neighbor's house for a while... Eric gets back in his car and heads back to the party. When he walks back into the party, Melin's just shocked to see his injured face. And so Eric tells Maylin about the fight in the car with Rob. And then Maylin tells Eric Courtney left the party on foot, but nobody saw her leave. Maylynn testified at trial that after Rob and Eric left the party, she told Courtney she didn't think it was a good idea for Courtney to go home that night. She just thought the situation was too heated. So Maylin offered for Courtney to stay at her house that night. When Courtney declined, Maylin then offered to give Courtney a ride to a friend's house. She says, I'll take you anywhere. Um, you really shouldn't go home. Rob seems really angry. It's not a safe situation for you. And um, Courtney just kept saying, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't need a ride. So when Eric left the party with Rob, it was around 7 p.m. Eric got back to the party around 8 or 8.30 Courtney stayed back at the party. Like I said earlier, she stayed for a while, but at some point she left on foot before Eric got back to the party. Nobody saw her leave and nobody knew where she was headed. Meanwhile, Rob is walking alongside the road in Newhall, not too far from his apartment. And it just so happened that around 730 in the evening, a friend of Courtney's named Nico was driving in Newhall with his girlfriend and he sees Rob walking along the side of the road. He pulls over and he asks Rob, you know, do you need a ride? So Rob ended up getting back in the car and uh, Nico testified at trial that there was a very awkward situation in the car as he was driving Rob home. So when Rob gets into the car, he immediately tells Nico that he and Courtney got into an argument and that he had gotten into a fight with a guy Courtney was flirting with. Then Rob basically starts telling Nico he's going to go to Mabel's bar and do some heroin. And Mabel's bar is kind of a dive bar in Santa Clarita. We don't really have many of them in Santa Clarita, but that's one of them. I've been there before. It's, you know, it's got a stage for bands to play. And it really is kind of a, I would say a little bit of a seedy type bar. Rob proceeds to tell Nico's girlfriend, whom he's never met before in his life. He tells her, quote, you better treat Nico good or I'll kill you. And again, this is really odd because Rob barely knows Nico, and he doesn't know Nico's girlfriend at all. So at this point, you know, Nico and his girlfriend just want Rob out of the car. The conversation made him and his girlfriend really nervous. It was just very off-putting to them. So Nico drops Rob off at his apartment around 745, and then he drives off. Soon after that, Nico gets a phone call from Rob, and uh, Rob's asking him to go, again, to go hang out at Mabel's bar with him. And Nico declines and just basically says he can't go with him. At this time, Eric's headed back to the party. Courtney's somewhere in the San Fernando Valley with no keys, no cell phone. Rob's back home at his apartment, and he's wanting to find out where Courtney is. Around eight o'clock, Rob actually calls Courtney's mom, Dawn, and tells her about the argument, asks Dawn, you know, have you seen Courtney? Have you heard from her? Dawn tells Rob, no, I haven't heard from her. And so now Dawn's really worried because she's hearing that her daughter's just gotten into a very heated argument with her husband and that her daughter's somewhere in the San Fernando Valley at night walking around with no cell phone. At this point, Dawn decides to get in her car and drive to the valley uh, to find Courtney. She testified at trial you know, that Courtney really liked Chipotle restaurants, so she finds a Chipotle in the San Fernando Valley and walks in and asks them, you know, have you seen my daughter? She gives them a description, but nobody there has seen Courtney. So after searching around for a while, Dawn cannot find Courtney, and so she just drives back home to Newhall. After that, there were a couple more calls exchanged between Dawn and Rob, each of them calling one another. Dawn is basically calling Rob now because she's worried and she's wanting to get updates to see if he has found where Courtney is, but he lets her know that he hasn't found her. During that same conversation, he ends up telling Dawn, you know, your daughter's a whore. She's a cheater. She's this, she's that. So it just kind of gives you an idea as to Rob's uh, mindset at the time. I mean, for him to tell his wife's mother that her daughter's a whore. And again, he had only known Courtney for five months, meaning he had only known her mom for that same amount of time. It's just strange. There's some more calls exchanged between Don and between Rob. And at one point they're on the phone together and Don hears in the background, Rob yelling at Courtney. He's saying, Courtney, get in the car, get in the car, get in the fucking car. And Courtney's telling him, no, fuck you. I'm not getting in the car. You know, they're kind of yelling at each other. So it's apparent that Rob has actually found Courtney in the San Fernando Valley, but she's refusing to get in his car. And this was about 9 p.m. Rob and Don get off the phone at this point, and after that point, around 9 p.m., Don is never able to get a hold of Rob again. He will not answer her phone calls for the rest of the night. Around 9 p.m., you know, Don's at home. She's really worried about Courtney. Courtney's on foot somewhere in the San Fernando Valley, and Rob is driving back toward home, and he won't answer Don's calls anymore. At trial, Robin Courtney's landlord actually testified that he and his girlfriend got a knock at their door around 9:40 in the evening, and it was Courtney asking to be let into her and Rob's apartment because she didn't have her keys. The landlord and his girlfriend actually lived in the same complex as Robin Courtney, so not too, just a few steps from Robin Courtney's uh, apartment. The landlord could tell that Courtney had been crying, he said that she had mascara running down her face, she was upset. Courtney actually told the landlord and his girlfriend that she and Rob had been into a really bad argument and she just wanted to get in their apartment, gather her things and stay with her mom for the night. At that time, the landlord tells Courtney he needs to call Rob and ask permission since Rob's name is the only one on the lease. He just wants to follow protocol. So at 944 exactly, the landlord calls Rob, and we know this because there was a photo of his call log shown at trial. So at 944, the landlord calls Rob. Rob answers the phone and says, hey, you know, Courtney's here. She wants to be let into the apartment. Is it okay? Rob says, go ahead, let her in. I'll be right there. So at that time, the landlord's girlfriend gets the master key and begins walking Courtney to her apartment. And Courtney's crying and she's telling the landlord's girlfriend about the argument with Rob. She's just really upset. Meanwhile, you know, the landlord ends up calling Rob back around 9.50 in the evening while his girlfriend and Courtney are walking back to the apartment. And the landlord basically tells Rob, hey, look, it's not a good idea for you to come home. You know, he advises him basically to stay somewhere else for the night. And he just says, look, things are really heated between you two. You know, maybe you should stay somewhere else. Rob ends up kind of just saying, you know, no, everything's fine. I'm on my way there now. So the landlord's girlfriend and Courtney get to the apartment. Uh, they unlock the door of the apartment and Courtney walks inside. And basically, Courtney's telling the landlord's girlfriend, you know, look, I just want to gather my things. I'm going to get my dog and I want to go to my mom's house for the night. Seeing how upset Courtney was, the landlord's girlfriend offers at that time to walk Courtney to her mom's apartment. But Courtney says, no, no, you know, I'll be fine. Uh, I just need to gather my things. So the landlord's girlfriend actually just ends up leaving and walking back to her own apartment, leaving Courtney alone in her apartment to gather her things. The landlord's son, who also lived in the complex, testified at trial that he heard a car screeching into the apartment, just driving really fast and kind of screeching around you know, the corner into the parking lot around 10 p.m. And that was just minutes after Courtney was led into her apartment. The landlord's son goes to see who came screeching in the parking lot, And he finds Rob getting out of his truck. Rob had basically just parked his truck in front of Rob and Courtney's apartment. And at that time, the landlord's son just kind of says, hey, Rob, what's going on? You know, why are you driving so crazy? And Rob tells him, oh, you know, everything's fine. And they just continue talking for a few seconds. And right then, Courtney comes walking out of their apartment with her dog in her hands and yells at Rob. And she says, give me my fucking keys, Rob. She must have heard him pull up because he came screeching in. So at that point, the landlord's son basically sees that, you know, Rob and Courtney were having a fight and he decides to leave. You know, at trial, he just kind of said, look, it was none of my business. I just wanted to go. At that time, the landlord's son leaves and Rob and Courtney proceed to walk into their apartment and shut the door. And this is just a few minutes after 10 o'clock in the evening. A lady named Maria who lived in the apartment directly below Robin Courtney's testified at trial that she was in her living room and she heard a very loud thump come from the apartment above hers sometime between 10 and 1030 in the evening. Uh, she says she only heard one thump and she knew approximately what time it was because she always goes to bed right around the same time because she has to work early the next morning and she knows that she heard this thump just before she went to bed. In Maria's apartment, she's in the apartment below Robin Courtney's. Her apartment has the exact same layout as Robin Courtney's, so she, Maria, was in her living room at the time she heard the thump directly above her, so she assumed that something had hit the floor in the living room uh, of the apartment above hers. Also, a doorman from Mabel's bar testified that Rob showed up to the bar around 11 or 11:30 in the evening and tried to get in, but the doorman testified that Rob was stumbling as he walked up. He appeared basically to be too drunk, so the doorman wouldn't let him in. And the doorman testified that after that, Rob just got into his truck and he drove away. Courtney's mom, Dawn, you know, she's still worried about her daughter because she hasn't heard from her or Rob in hours at this point. And Rob, like I said earlier, he stopped answering her calls. So a little before midnight, Dawn decides to call the Santa Clarita Sheriff Station and she asks if they can go check on her daughter because she hasn't heard from her in a while and she's worried. So a sheriff shows up at Rob and Courtney's apartment around midnight and he knocks on the door. Rob ends up answering the door, but only slightly. The sheriff said uh, the, the apartment was completely dark and he could only see Rob's face. And basically the sheriff tells Rob, you know, Courtney's mom called. She requested to do a welfare check on Courtney. She's very worried is she okay? And Rob says, oh yeah, Courtney's fine. You know, she's sleeping. Well, the sheriff said, you know, her mom was extremely worried. I need you to go wake Courtney up because I need to actually talk to her to make sure she's okay. So at that time, Rob closes the door and he basically never comes back. The sheriff knocks on the door again a few times, but Rob never comes back. And at that time, the sheriff actually received a priority call and he had to leave their apartment. Around one thirty in the morning, Dawn actually calls the sheriff station again because she hasn't heard from her daughter, so she asks them to go do another welfare check. So at that time, two different sheriffs show up at the apartment and they knock on the door. Nobody answers the door, so they knock again harder, nobody answers, so they knock again. Pretty hard this time. And the door ends up opening slightly because they knocked on it so hard. But the door had what's known as kind of like a hotel lock on it. So the door was able to open, but it only opened about three inches. The apartment was completely dark inside. So with the door slightly open, one of the sheriffs shines his flashlight into the dark apartment and he actually sees a pair of legs on the floor. So at that time, knowing there's a body on the floor they bust open the door they go inside and they end up finding Courtney's lifeless body laying face up on the living room floor There was blood covering her entire face and her dog actually was attached to her body around her waist so the dog was unable to leave her side. So the dog was there and barking when the sheriffs came in. So the sheriffs were very alarmed so they walked slowly down the hallway toward the bathroom to find Rob passed out on the bathroom floor. So at that time, after finding Rob um, passed out or, you know, laying down on the bathroom floor, the sheriff's call for backup. And unfortunately, Courtney would later be pronounced dead at the scene in the early morning hours of May 24th, 2015. Actually, the sheriffs were able to eventually wake Rob up. They handcuff him and they put him in the back of the police car. He's taken into the station for questioning. They drew blood at that time and it would later be determined that Rob's blood alcohol level was about three times the legal driving limit of 0.08. So he was intoxicated. After this all happened, the media picked up the story and they began reporting that it appeared Courtney had died from blunt force trauma. A few days after Courtney's death, Rob was arrested on suspicion of assault against another person, that other person being Eric, who he beat up in the car. And just four months after that, Rob would be charged with first-degree murder in connection with Courtney's death and held on $1.1 million bail at the men's uh, central jail in L.A. trial was set to begin in June of 2017, two years after Courtney's death, but it got delayed a month. I received a jury summons in the mail in May of 2017, but I requested an extension because I was just busy at work. I was granted an extension, and my instructions were to call in to the jury hotline on July 17th. I called in that day in the morning, and the automated system informed me that I didn't need to go to jury duty that day and instructed me to call in again the next day. So on Tuesday, July 18th, I called in again, and at that time I was informed that I needed to report to the San Fernando Superior Courthouse in the morning. So I arrived that morning, all of us were given a juror badge with a four-digit number on it, and then a few hours later, 73 of us who were in that room together were instructed to report to the fourth floor, sit outside of the courtroom and just wait for further instructions. I actually ended up sitting next to uh an older man, maybe like 55 years old, And we sparked up a conversation and during our conversation, he told me that he was actually a homicide detective. So I was immediately intrigued being somebody that's, you know, obviously a true crime junkie. So we sparked up a conversation and it was at that time that he ended up telling me, you know, I think that you are going to be on a homicide case. And I asked him how he knew that. And he said he could just tell by the number of us that were waiting outside the courtroom. He said 73 potential jurors. Typically, that means that it's probably a homicide trial. When we walked in, there was a woman in a nice uh, skirt suit standing on the right-hand side of the room, and then there were two men standing on the left-hand side of the room. All of them were standing and facing us as we walked into the courtroom. And right away, I knew the lady on the right was the prosecutor, and I knew that the two men on the left were the defendant and his attorney— The prosecutor was Julie Kramer. She was deputy district attorney. She's a Caucasian lady with a thin build, medium length brown hair, attractive. She looked to be in like her mid 40s. She wore little to no makeup every day, but always looked uh, nice and put together. Both men on the left side of the courtroom were wearing nice suits. You could make an assumption, though, as to which one was the defendant. He had a very distinct look. Uh The defendant, who we later learned was named Robert Arvizu or Rob Arvizu, stood about six foot two inches tall. He had a muscular build. To me, he looked to be Hispanic, but I wasn't sure. Um He had tattoos all over his hands, also on the back of his head. His head was shaved completely bald, and he had a long gray goatee that had these small rubber bands that were cinching it together from top to bottom. It was an interesting look, to say the least. Judge David W. Stewart at that time began to provide some details regarding the case. And again, at that time, you know, we didn't know what kind of trial this would be. I had gotten a hint that it might be a homicide trial from the homicide detective, but I wasn't sure. So the judge at that time started reading all of the charges and the charges were two assault charges. And then he said something, something, something. And I heard the numbers 187. And then shortly after that, he said homicide. When I heard 187, I knew uh, that it was a homicide trial. Obviously, I was shocked and I was intrigued. At that time, the court clerk said she was going to go ahead and read aloud 18 juror numbers, and so if your number was called, you were to come through the swinging door and sit down in the juror box. For the first 18 people who were called, they sat down in the juror box, and there's just a set of standard questions that the judge asks you. He asks you things like, you know, what city do you live in? Are you married? What is your occupation? What's your spouse's occupation? Do you have children? Do you have any adult children? And if you do, what is their occupation? Then it was the prosecutor's turn to ask some more specific questions. And so it was at this time that we actually received some clues as to the details that would come out in the case or what would be, you know, involved in the trial. She started to ask things like, have you or anybody close to you suffered from alcoholism? Have you been the victim of or accused of, you know, domestic abuse, things like that. So you kind of understood that time that, you know, something about this case would involve alcohol as well as domestic abuse. Then the defendant's public defender, Edward Mack, got up and asked his questions. And Edward Mack was a nicely dressed African American man. His head was also shaved completely bald and he had a very colorful personality. So Mack would ask questions like, can you be impartial and come to your verdict based on the evidence and the law and not your emotions? And then Mack explained the law pertaining to circumstantial evidence. He says, you know, if two pieces of circumstantial evidence are presented, one points to guilt and the the other one points to innocence, you have to accept the evidence as pointing toward innocence. Then Mac proceeded to give a very interesting example of what circumstantial evidence is. He says, if someone passes gas in an elevator and then gets off the elevator, other people walk in the elevator, they smell it, they automatically assume that you did it. But that doesn't mean you did it. They're just basing their opinion on circumstantial evidence. So it was interesting. I mean, the courtroom kind of laughed. So some of the jurors got excused just based on their answers to some of these questions. And so let's say, you know, six jurors get excused. Well, then they call a round of six more juror numbers. And I was actually in that second round. So I went and I sat in number six's seat and I never got up. That's where I stayed the remainder. I never got excused. So jury selection took about two days. It was a long and boring process, but we finally got 12 jurors and three alternates sworn in. And uh, like I said, I ended up being juror number six. So opening arguments began on July 20th. Rob was charged with two counts of assault against Eric. And murder in the first degree for killing his wife the evening of May 23rd, 2015. The prosecutor was basically claiming that Rob killed Courtney in cold blood because he was a jealous, abusive, and controlling husband, while the defense attorney was claiming Rob was just, you know, in an alcoholic blackout, at, you know, that night. It's possible maybe he wasn't even the one who killed Courtney, which was kind of crazy for him to say. He did offer up a very weak conspiracy theory during trial, but none of the jurors bought it. He's just basically claiming that Rob was in an alcoholic blackout and doesn't remember what happened that night. The state had a strong case against Rob. I mean, the timeline fit. The witnesses saw Rob get aggressive with Courtney at the party. The landlord's son saw Rob and Courtney at the apartment together arguing. Uh, and the neighbor below, Rob and Courtney, heard a loud thump shortly after they were seen arguing. There was also a lot of DNA evidence and blood evidence. The evidence shown at trial showed Courtney's blood in various places in the apartment leading from the living room, down the hallway, and also all over the bathroom where Rob was found passed out. The evidence showed that Rob tried to clean up in the bathroom after Courtney's death. Uh, There was blood found in the sink drain, in the shower drain, and also on a hand towel. And remember the doorman at Mabel's bar who wouldn't let Rob in the bar? The prosecutor claimed that after Rob killed Courtney, cleaned up, he went to the bar to establish an alibi, to basically say, well, I wasn't even in the apartment at the time, I was at the bar. But as you'll recall, he was never let into the bar because he was too drunk. So Rob ends up getting in his truck and drives home. The evidence also showed a lot of dry blood on Rob's hands after he was arrested and brought into the station that evening. The dry blood would have been on his hands when he went to Mabel's bar, but it was dark outside, and so the doorman probably would have never noticed it on his hands. At trial, um, the state called two of Rob's ex-girlfriends to the stand to testify, and it was eerie how much they looked alike. Both of them were tall, very thin, had large breasts, uh, long, dark brown hair, and high cheekbones. Both were very attractive women. Erica was the first to testify. She dated Rob in 2005 when she was 20 years old, and Rob was twice her age, and so he, he really liked to date younger women. Erica told the jury that Rob used to constantly accuse her of cheating, as he did with Courtney. He was very physically abusive with her as well. Erica never ended up reporting it to police, though. Erica told a story that uh, one night in 2005, she was getting off work. She was a waitress at a local restaurant in Santa Clarita. She was walking through the parking lot to her car, and she was walking alongside another man whom she worked with. And Rob happened to be in the parking lot. I don't know if he was waiting to pick her up or what. He was in the parking lot. He saw Erica walking with another man. He became enraged and he ended up grabbing Erica in a very aggressive manner and pushed her and she almost fell down a couple of steps. Well, another person who Erica worked with saw this encounter and so she ends up calling the police and the police took a report. But again, Erica did not press charges. Erica also told the jury that Rob would call her in the middle of the night all the time and accuse her of cheating and having sex with other men and all kinds of things. So this is just something Rob did. I mean, he, again, as you recall, he accuses Courtney of cheating that night and he, you know, accuses Erica of cheating all the time. So Rob and Erica dated for about 18 months, but eventually they did end up breaking up. Danette was another ex-girlfriend of Rob's who testified at trial and she also dated Rob when she was younger. Uh, Rob was about 10 years older than her. And he, again, he would constantly accuse her of cheating and he was also physically abusive toward her. Danette recalled um, a really terrifying incident while they were dating. Rob actually called her in the morning and just basically said, you better get the fuck over here now. He's yelling at her. Danette told Rob, okay, you know, I'll be over there in a little bit. I have to drop my kids off at school. So, and it was around this time that actually Danette uh, was planning to break up with Rob and and she says that Rob knew that. Maybe that's what angered him. But anyway, he calls her in the morning, tells her, you know, get the fuck over here So Danette, after she drops her kids off from school, she goes to Rob's house and he immediately opens the door, pulls her inside. He shuts it behind her and he locks it and he pulls her into the master bedroom. He immediately throws her on the bed and just starts yelling at her and he's, you know, gets on top of her. He starts choking her. He starts telling her, you know, you're a housewife whore. You're cheating on me. You're this, you're that. And Danette basically testified that Rob's behavior was very erratic that night She said that he would beat her up and he would get on top of her and he would choke her. And then he would hop off of her and he would start kind of skipping around the room saying, I'm going to do years in prison over this. I'm going to do years in prison over this. And he would, it was just strange, erratic behavior. But this lasted in the bedroom for a few hours. And Rob was very angry. He got very physical with Danette. But at times he would calm down. And Danette basically said she went into survival mode and she told Rob whatever he wanted to hear. She says, you know, I'm not going to break up with you. I love you. And at one point she's kind of softly stroking him on the leg, just trying to calm him down. She just wanted to get out of there alive. Rob eventually tells Danette, well, if you love me, then have sex with me right now. And although Danette didn't want to, she felt like she had to. So she complied. And during the whole time they were having sex, Rob choked her the whole time. It was just a very scary situation for Danette and eventually she is allowed to leave and she ends up breaking up with Rob sometime after that. So Rob had a a history of abusing women and that was well established at trial. Interestingly, another one of Rob's ex-girlfriends testified on his behalf at the trial and she was actually the mother of his two children. I don't know the ages of his children, but I believe they're somewhere older than 10 years old, but not adults yet, maybe preteens. But they had dated many years ago and basically she claimed that Rob was never abusive toward her. But the way that she would answer kind of made us question whether she was being truthful. So the defense attorney would say, okay, well, you dated Rob. You know, was he ever abusive towards you? And she says, nope. You just kind of like that. So it was strange. But anyway, her, her testimony was brief. So. The day that Rob's ex-girlfriend or his baby mama testified, I actually ended up going to the same restaurant as her for lunch. And I was sitting down at the table and I saw her walk in and she actually walked in with Rob's aunt, who also testified at trial, and also another man who we saw in the courtroom every single day. He was there every day at trial, but... He was sitting on Rob's side of the courtroom and none of us jurors knew who he was. And we used to call him the mystery man and we were taking like these fake bets trying to figure out who he was. I, for the longest time, thought he was part of the media. Some people speculated that he may have been Rob's dad, but we really didn't know. So in walks baby mama, as well as Rob's aunt and this mystery man. But when baby mama walked into the restaurant, she was kind of skipping and dancing as she walked in, which I found kind of strange given that she had just testified that same day, you know, in a first degree murder trial where the father of her children could end up being locked away for the rest of his life. So I just, I found it odd. But um, as I mentioned earlier, the state, you know, had a very strong case against Rob. The evidence and the witness testimony would show that shortly after the landlord's son left Courtney and Rob's apartment, when he saw them arguing, Rob and Courtney went inside their apartment and altercation ensued within minutes. Rob struck Courtney several times in the face. She fell to the ground face down on the living room floor. And it's believed that she was knocked unconscious by these blows. And obviously we were shown pictures of the crime scene and her injuries were horrendous. She had cuts above each eye. She had a cut below one of her eyes. She had both eyes were swollen. Her jaw appeared to be out of place and there was just blood covering her entire face. So it it was believed that Courtney was actually knocked unconscious by um, all of these blows and she ends up landing uh, face down on the living room floor. Rob then proceeded to get on top of Courtney and applied tremendous pressure to the back of her head, basically cutting off her airway as her face was pushed into the floor. So Courtney's actual cause of death was not blunt force trauma. As the media had reported early on, it was actually smothering. She died from asphyxiation or smothering. There was a medical expert who actually testified at the trial and told the jurors that death by smothering is caused when someone's airway is completely cut off so they can no longer breathe. The medical expert went on to say that someone would pass out after about 30 seconds of having their airway restricted and death would occur within three to five minutes. I mean, three to five minutes is a long time to apply extreme pressure on someone. You know, it was evident that Rob wanted Courtney dead. If you think about it, if you stop right now and you squeeze, say, a water bottle really tightly for three to five minutes, it's a long time. And the medical expert basically testified that it has to be tremendous pressure so that the airway is completely cut off. So as you'll recall, earlier, I had mentioned that the landlord's girlfriend let Courtney into the apartment and um, Courtney immediately began gathering her things to stay overnight at her mom's house, who just lived right across the street. At that time, Courtney had grabbed a bath and body works bag. Um, She put a hair clip in it, a bralette, body wash, and some other things. They showed a picture of it at trial. And it was basically all the things you would take if you were in a hurry to stay somewhere overnight, just kind of the essentials. And when Courtney fell to the ground after being hit in the face, she actually landed face down with her face landing directly on top of that Bath and Body Works bag. And we knew that Courtney died laying face down because there was a small amount of liver mortis found on Courtney's front upper thigh. And basically liver mortis is pooling of the blood. So when somebody dies, all of your blood pools to the lowest point of gravity. And so if you die laying face down, well, then there's going to be, um, liver mortis in the front of your face on your stomach, the front of your thighs, basically the front of your body, because that's the lowest point of gravity. When the sheriff's busted the door open and found Courtney's body, she was laying face up and the bath and body works bag was laying right next to her face. And there was dry blood all over the outside of the bag. Courtney had been hit several times in the face and the autopsy photo showed a deep cut on her eyebrow. Also another one on her other eyebrow, a cut below her eye. These cuts are what caused Courtney to have all the blood all over her face. And that blood transferred onto the Bath and Body Works bag when her face landed on top of it. The prosecutor actually showed a close-up photo of the Bath and Body Works bag at trial. And she told jurors you could see an outline of Courtney's face on the bag, and you actually could when you looked at it. It was chilling. So as I'd mentioned earlier, uh, Courtney died laying face down. We know that because of the liver mortis that was found on her front thigh. Um, But when the sheriffs found her body, she was actually laying face up. So how we believe this happened was that after Rob killed Courtney, he cleaned up, he went to the bar, he left her laying there on the living room floor face down with her face on the bag. When Rob returned home from the bar, he was probably curious to see what he had done to her. So he turned her body over. And the bag just stayed there, but by then the blood was dry. It had time to dry because Rob left and went to Mabel's bar. The trial lasted two weeks and one day, and we began deliberating on a Friday, which was July 28th, around 1045 in the morning. Prior to deliberations, the judge, basically for about an hour to an hour and a half, he read all the laws and the jury instructions to us, and he told us our first order of business would be to choose a jury foreman. He urged all of us to base our verdicts on only the law and the evidence presented, uh, as well as the witness testimony. So when we got into the jury deliberation room, our choices were voluntary manslaughter, second-degree murder, first-degree murder, or not guilty. And I was chosen as the jury foreman fairly quickly when we got into the room, and then we basically just got down to business. We began going through the evidence uh, and deliberating on all three charges. We decided to reach a verdict on the two assault charges first to get those out of the way. So then we began deliberating on the murder charge. And by the end of the day, and this was on a Friday, we were close to reaching a verdict on the murder charge, but decided we needed more time and we didn't want to rush it. So we took the weekend and we resumed um, back that Monday morning. And by late morning, we delivered a message to the judge that a verdict on all three charges had been reached. And a few minutes later, we were escorted into the courtroom and asked to sit down in the jury box. I handed the verdicts over to the bailiff, who then handed them over to the judge. I was very relieved at that time that I uh, was not going to have to read the verdicts aloud because it just would have been extremely nerve wracking. When the judge got the verdicts in his hands, he basically read the verdicts uh, just to himself and then he handed the envelope over to the county clerk who then began reading the verdicts aloud. And basically we found Rob guilty of two counts of assault against Eric and guilty of murder in the first degree for killing Courtney. When the verdict was read aloud, there was actually no reaction from Rob at all. Uh, I personally think he saw it coming. At that point, the judge asked the defense attorney if he wanted to pull the jury. And I didn't know what this meant, but the defense attorney said, yes, I want to go ahead and pull the jury. So basically what that means is the judge went around to each individual juror and asked them one by one if they agreed with the verdict. And did they come to this conclusion on their own? And all the jurors answered yes. This was an extremely tense moment, at least for me, because Rob was looking each juror in the eyes as they answered yes to the judge's question. And that was chilling. Every time, you know, Rob would look over at me. Courtney's mom was noticeably absent um, the day the verdicts were read. And we would actually find out later the reason she didn't attend court that day. Jury was dismissed. And when we were dismissed, we walked out of the courtroom and a bunch of us happened to get in the elevator with Julie Kramer, the prosecutor. And, you know, I immediately shook her hand and I told her she really laid out the case nicely and made it a lot easier for us. And so when we got out of the elevator, she actually spent about 15 minutes with us and answered a lot of our questions and gave a lot of additional information that actually didn't come out at trial. She ended up telling us who the mystery man was um, sitting on Rob's side of the courtroom each day. And it turns out that that was Rob's stepfather who had gained custody of Rob's daughters years ago because he and baby mama were on drugs. So I found that interesting because if a mother and a father lose custody of their children, it seems somewhat rare that custody of those children would then go to the father's stepfather. I mean, I'm wondering why the kids, you know, didn't end up with Rob's mom. Maybe he has a sister. Why didn't, you know, they end up with his sister? So that's one of the questions I would like to get answered if I ever had a chance to. The prosecutor also told us that Danette, one of the ex-girlfriends who testified, she had come forward after she heard of Courtney's death because she said she wanted to help and she felt extremely guilty because she hadn't reported Rob to the cops after he had abused her years ago. She also told us that Rob's stepfather, basically the reason he wanted to attend trial every day is because he wanted to know the truth and he wanted to know for certain whether Rob did this to Courtney. And if he did, he wanted to be able to tell Rob's daughters the truth one day and so that they could all have some closure. She also told us that Rob was scheduled to be sentenced in a couple of weeks on August 15th, and I was actually not able to attend the sentencing. But during sentencing, members of Courtney and Rob's family and some friends gave statements. Eric, um, who testified during the trial, who was Rob's best friend and the man he assaulted that night, said, quote, I know Rob. I know the best parts of him, and unfortunately, I know the worst parts of him. His anger brought out the worst in him. The anger is still in him, and I don't think it will ever go away. In addressing the judge, Eric said, Make sure he can't hurt anybody ever again. Rob's cousin also gave a statement, and she said she had difficulty reconciling the murder with happy photos of Courtney and Rob that she had received on her phone the day of the killing. She said, quote, I have pictures of the last day of them being happy. I was shocked because this is not the cousin I know and love. It's been hard for us. We got to know Courtney and we love her. We're sorry for your loss, she told members of Courtney's family sitting on the other side of the courtroom. I love my cousin, she said, as Rob watched over his shoulder. He was not a monster, she said. The judge asked the cousin if she had attended the trial and she answered that she had not. Basically, I think the judge was trying to point out that you're saying that Rob's not a monster, but had you attended this trial, you would have seen that what he did to her was brutal. Then Rob himself made a statement. He turned to face the family and friends of Courtney while handcuffed and sitting next to his attorney. Rob said, quote, there is nothing I can say or do that will bring Courtney back. One day you will know. Stopping short of continuing, but implying that he had more to tell them at a later date. I honestly don't remember that night, he told them, referring to the night he killed Courtney. There's going to be a day where I will let you know what happened, he said. There was a lot of lying on the witness stand. Rob mentioned quietly at times that he should have shared his feelings with a friend. He said, I should have talked about things back then, but I didn't. After two years behind bars, Rob said, there is no anger in me now. The closest he actually came to an apology was when he told the judge, quote, I'm sorry for everything that's gone on here. Unquote, referring to the courtroom, basically, he said, "My family is suffering too." Then Judge Stewart gave his comments. Judge Stewart said, "This is a double tragedy. Mr. Arvizu took Courtney's life and threw away his own. We've seen this domestic violence situation too often in court, where an extremely jealous husband is extremely controlling of his wife, who is extremely insecure. A man willing to use his size advantage against the women in his life. I don't know if he's a monster, but I know that he's a bully." He's a bully, plain and simple. Courtney is killed. Courtney is gone. And Mr. Arvizu has thrown his life away, Judge Stewart said. Then he delivered his sentence. 28 years in prison. Rob got 25 years for Courtney's murder and three years for each assault charge, of which half would be served concurrently. Although Rob showed no emotion when the verdicts were read aloud in the courtroom, there was one time when he got emotional during the trial, and it was when his good friend of many years, May Lynn, testified. When the prosecutor called Maylin to testify, she entered the courtroom just sobbing, and it was clear she, this was going to be a very tough uh, thing for her to get through. Maylin was sworn in, and then she sat down on the witness chair, but it took her a few moments to gather herself, I and mean, she was completely sobbing, and she could barely breathe. She was emotional during her entire testimony, but it was when she finished that Rob got emotional. There was this very tense moment in the courtroom that when Maylin was excused by the judge after being a witness... She stood up and she just glared at Rob for about 10 seconds. She was sobbing, and this made Rob emotional. Malin didn't say anything at this time. She just stared at Rob and sobbed. It was a very tense moment, um, as all of the other witnesses would immediately leave the witness chair when the judge excused them, but Malin did not. And my take on this moment was that if Malin was allowed to speak with Rob, she would be saying, why'd you do this? You didn't have to do this. I also think she knew that this would likely be the last time she would ever see Rob. And even though she and Eric were no longer friends with Rob, you know, because of what he did, it was hard to separate all the good times they probably had with him over the years. And, you know, I'm sure Rob had another side to him that made him very likable uh, and a lovable person. But all that being said, Rob never apologized to Courtney's family during sentencing, and he took no accountability for what he did to her. He claimed that he didn't remember what happened, which his attorney claimed was due to Rob being in an alcoholic blackout at the time Courtney died. But evidence presented showed that was not the case. When Rob screeched into the apartment complex, he parked his car perfectly in front of their apartment. There was a picture actually shown at trial of his truck, and it was parked perfectly within the lines. We also knew from the landlord's son's uh, testimony that Rob was totally coherent when he spoke to him. He was calm. We know Courtney died within minutes of Rob getting back to the apartment, so there was no time for him to get drunk and black out before killing her. We know from blood tests performed on Rob after he was taken into custody that he was drunk at the time of his arrest, but that happened after Courtney was killed, not before. There was a photo in the bathroom where he was passed out of a bunch of empty beer bottles in the bathroom. When we began deliberating, uh, we went through all the options, which were voluntary manslaughter, second degree murder, first degree murder, or not guilty. Uh, we were very careful to weigh all the evidence presented at trial, the witness testimony, and also to take all the applicable laws into account. We concluded fairly quickly that it was not voluntary manslaughter. A classic example of voluntary manslaughter is two people get into a fight at a bar. One person punches the other person and that person falls and hits their head on the bar on the way down. And that head injury causes their death. They did not intend to cause their death, but it, their death did happen as a result of them punching the other person. So that's voluntary manslaughter. The manner in which Courtney died was not voluntary manslaughter. So then it was between second degree and first degree murder. We deliberated on it for quite a while. We knew that it was at least second degree murder. And for it to be second degree murder, there has to be what's called malice aforethought or, and an intent to kill. Um, but the murder was not premeditated. So an example would be two people have an altercation while driving, basically a road rage situation. They pull up to a stop sign and one of the people pulls out a gun and shoots the other. The killer didn't premeditate or plan to kill the other person. Um, they did it in the heat of the moment. They did commit the act with malice or malice aforethought, and they did intend to kill that person, but the murder was not premeditated or planned out. That would be an example of second degree murder. So we knew that Courtney's murder was at least, you know, second degree murder, but we didn't know if we could elevate it to first degree murder with the key differentiator between the two charges being premeditation. I think many people, including me, think that premeditation is something that occurs over a number of days or months with somebody planning out the murder, you know, buying all the necessary supplies and then lying in wait for their victim. While that is a classic example of first degree murder, um, premeditation actually can happen a lot quicker than that. Um, I learned this after the judge read all the jury instructions and laws to us before we deliberated. We learned that premeditation can occur over a number of seconds or, or minutes. And part of the definition of premeditation states that a cold and calculated murder can happen quickly. The definition doesn't provide a specific amount of time as a measuring tool. It just says that it can happen quickly and the killer had to have had a chance to deliberate what they were doing and still choose to do it. So we know that Rob beat Courtney up that night and likely rendered her unconscious, causing her to fall to the floor. At that moment, she was not a threat to him at all. He could have stopped there, but he didn't. He chose then to get on top of her and put so much pressure on the back of her neck that she could no longer breathe. The medical expert testified that someone would lose consciousness after approximately 30 seconds of being smothered. So even if Courtney wasn't unconscious from the blows that she received, she certainly would have become unconscious from having her airway cut off for a period of time or 30 seconds. We also know from the medical experts' testimony that it would have taken approximately three to five minutes of extreme and continuous pressure to cause death by smothering. During that three to five minute period... We, being the jury, strongly believe that Rob had a chance to deliberate what he was doing to Courtney, and therefore it was premeditated. He chose to continue applying pressure for three to five minutes because he wanted her dead. Courtney was not a threat to him at some point because she was unconscious. You know, he could have stopped at that point, but he wanted to keep going. He did keep going, and he ultimately caused her death. You know, Rob was a big guy. He was far bigger than Courtney. She wouldn't have been a threat to him whether she was knocked unconscious or not. If Rob had stopped after Courtney fell to the floor, perhaps the verdict would have been different. You know, the second act he committed, smothering her, was really what our verdict hinged on. And I do stand by that verdict today and believe justice was served. I think about this trial often. It, it really had an impact on me. And when we were going through it, I was having trouble sleeping at night. You know, sitting in a small courtroom with a man who brutally killed a woman with his bare hands is really scary. And there were times when Rob would make eye contact with us and he had these deep set eyes that were just kind of haunting. And I think about the fact that, you know, these were the eyes that Courtney looked into as she was dying. And, you know, I think about Courtney a lot. I think about how things might be different had she not gone home to get her dog before going to her mom's house that night. Police found her with her dog still attached to her body when she died, and that tells me that she was almost out the door when Rob showed up to the apartment. Her dog was already on a leash and in her arms when she confronted Rob that night just before she died. Her overnight bag was packed, so she was ready to go. I also think about things like the phone call Rob's landlord placed that alerted Rob that Courtney was now home, prompting him to race over and come to the apartment. Would she have lived if that call had never been placed? Would she have survived if the landlord's son had not driven off after he saw Rob and Courtney arguing? Would things be different? None of these people had bad intentions, nor could they have ever known what was about to happen to Courtney. It's just kind of sad to think about what if. Even if Courtney had lived, Rob may have killed her at some other time. He was a dangerous person. He was angry. He was controlling. And I sort of think that he was just a ticking time bomb. Just two weeks before he killed Courtney, he actually spoke at his and Courtney's church and he got on stage and he told everybody how he had made, you know, a change in his life and he was on the right path. And a video of Rob's speech was actually on the church's website. But once Courtney died, they actually took the video down. My heart broke for Courtney's family during the trial. I mean, you could see that the immense sadness on Courtney's mom's face. I mean, the prosecuting attorney told us after the trial that Courtney's mom couldn't bring herself to attend the last day of Courtney's trial when the verdicts were read. And that was because she had had an emotional breakdown the week before after crime scene photos were shown in court uh, during closing arguments. I mean, I can't even imagine as a mother what that would be like. Courtney had two sisters and a brother. They were all very close. Um, Courtney's sisters each had a young child who Courtney adored. And by all accounts, Courtney was a sweet Caring girl who loved to work out. She loved being an aunt. She just got caught up with the wrong guy and it cost her her life. You know, the fact is that, you know, most people who are victims of domestic violence, they don't leave right away. They end up staying and they don't report it to police. And I think that what happens is, you know, you're in a domestic abuse situation and then the abuser becomes very apologetic. And maybe for the days after they hit you or the weeks after they they hit you, It's kind of a honeymoon period where you're kind of in control again and I think that you do believe that they're going to change, but they don't change and they end up just doing it over and over again. And you know, some women come to the conclusion that they can't take it anymore and they're able to get away. But I do think that most women do not leave um, the first time that they're abused. Rob's defense attorney actually said in court, oh, if these women are so afraid of Rob, why they stay with him? Well, the fact is that's not what most women do. They don't leave right away. And I don't think women should be judged by this. I think they're abuse victims. They've been traumatized. They've been bullied, controlled. They've been manipulated. And the last thing they need is for somebody to judge them for staying in an abusive relationship. So that's it for today's story. Thanks so much for joining me. I'd really like to hear your thoughts regarding this story. Do you agree with the verdicts? Do you have any questions? Do you agree with Rob's sentence? I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. So go to my Facebook group, that's Murderish Podcast. It's a closed Facebook group where we can discuss this case. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next time. Hey everyone, if you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing to the podcast and telling a friend. The word of mouth is powerful. Also, please follow me on social media so we can chat about these stories and really all things murder. Find me on Facebook at Murderish Podcast. On Twitter at Murderish Pod and on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. Also, feel free to shoot me an email anytime at Murderish Jamie, that's J A M I, at gmail.com. Hope to talk to you soon, and thanks again for listening.